right, we are uh, we're in the 23rd Psalm. We're continuing in that till Easter. We're in the Lenten season officially, Ash Wednesday being this past week. Um, hopefully you really take advantage of this time to, uh, to reflect, you know, to give, maybe give something up and, and reflect when in the moments when you're giving something up. Uh, on the sacrifices that Christ made on, on our behalf. Um, 23rd Psalm, we're looking at the pattern of the cross that emerges through the psalm, and we're seeing that, of course, this, this pattern of the cross that, that kind of comes out as the pattern of hope for our lives. And really, it's the only pattern for, for hope uh, for our lives. Sometimes we forget that, which is kind of why we're spending time, again, really just in this series. Um, and want to encourage you too, you know, some of these outreach things that we're doing, take advantage of these because it is a really great opportunity to sit um, and expose yourself to other people's worldviews and to be able to see the literally just the vanity of vanities, the hopelessness that is out there uh, apart from the cross. There's just nothing. It makes for some really interesting time and usually in the end we end up, you know, really a lot of us go out, go out, you know, go out of there praying for people, uh, you know, in, in our hearts and, and home in that way. But also rejoicing, you know, and giving thanks to God and, and thinking, wow, okay, um, I understand more even now about my faith and about the cross than I did when I went in there. Even if, um, you know, you don't consider yourself a great apologetic or someone who knows all their stuff about theology, it's a great place to, to learn and grow in your faith. Um, we're going to read the 23rd Psalm together. I think we've got that up there, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Today we are, um, are focusing on, on this portion. The Lord is my shepherd, for he is with me. All right, um, how, many, how many golfers do we have uh, in the room? Raise your hands high. If you're a golfer, you consider yourself a golfer. Good. Um, how many have ever swung a golf club in their life? Good, good, that's good. How many have, have never swung a golf club in their life? Okay. How many are aware that there is a game called golf that people play? All right, good, good. Um, there's a, a, a movie that, that came to mind this week in, in reflecting on the psalm um, called Tin Cup. How many have seen Tin Cup? Good. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, for those of you who don't, uh, Tin Cup stars Kevin Costner. Um, and uh, Tin Cup is, is a nickname for this golfer named Roy McAvoy, who is a former college golf star who should be, by now, playing golf on the PGA Tour, but instead is, you know, drinking way too much bad beer, living in a golf stream, and running a broken-down you know, driving range in the middle of nowhere, Texas, right? That's, that's sort of the, the premise, the story of, um, of this guy. He's got, you know, every golf gift imaginable. 
but he's a head case. Uh, he can't keep it together. Whenever he goes out and plays a round or plays a tournament, has to play a series of rounds, eventually he just implodes. He just falls um, apart. And so the movie is really about him trying to sort of learn how to keep his, his head together, his head in the game, so that he can actually accomplish something and become the, the golf pro that his gifts should you know, really enable him to be. And um, there's this one scene in the movie that, that really is the one I, I want us to focus on. Um, he's trying to keep it together. He's seeing a shrink, and he's trying to practice the things that he's learning out on the, the course. And at one point in the, in the match play, in this qualifying for the U.S. Open, he gets into it with his caddy. And they start to argue and fight about what, what club he should be swinging and what he should be going for at this, uh, this point in, in the hole. And pretty much, you know, it seems like this is a crucial moment. Here's a chance for him to, to test his keeping, you know, his, his head together. Um, and he fails miserably. Gets into a fight with his caddy, and he starts basically taking every club in the bag, especially, you know, if you've seen this, you remember this, and he starts to break them over his knees. And he's got just, you know, the, the lawn and where he's at is just, just riddled with clubs. And there's one club left in his bag. And so he reaches for that club, and he says, and then there's the seven iron, the trusty seven iron. Every other club is, is an unfaithful prostitute of a club, basically, is the way he describes it. Can't trust it. Throws them, breaks them, snaps them. But the seven, the seven is true. He can rely on the seven. The seven will bail him out. And so he shoots the back nine at even par with a seven iron. And, of course, as he finishes you know, the, the round, he sees you know, his, his sort of antagonist. And he says, hey, I just shot the back nine and the seven iron. Have you ever done that? And he says, no, never needed to. I can't imagine why anyone would try to shoot the back in a seven iron. The whole movie is about golf, you know, basically golf as a metaphor for life. And this overarching question that, that is there the entire time is, what do you have in your bag to get you through the round? And the real question is, what's your seven iron? When the chips are down, you know, when, when the proverbial poop has hit the fan, what do you reach for? In your bag. What's your seven iron is the question. What is going to get you through this round and into the next round? Now, everyone knows instinctively, we know this. We can work our hardest to deny this, but we know this in our heart of hearts. This is the first round. We know there is something that happens after this round of life. 99.9% .9 of the people living are, are not atheists. 0.1% of the people living are, are true atheists, non-self-contradicting true atheists. And 99.9% .9 of that 0.1% either end up committing suicide or end up in the nuthouse, right? That's just the truth in terms of the way we really understand life. True atheists are really hard to find. We all understand this is a, a practice round for something that comes afterwards. And the question is, what do you have in your, in your bag? What is your seven iron? What do you reach for? What do you grab for? What are you counting on or pointing to to get you through this round? The truth is that, you know, if we read Psalm 23, most of us read it this way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I should come out the other side just fine because I've got my seven iron.
whatever that seven iron may be for you. Maybe it's um, your good works. Maybe it's your, your intelligence. Maybe um, your athleticism. Uh, maybe it's good looks, sense of humor, good personality, money, endurance, perseverance, whatever. What's your seven iron? What do you point to? What do you reach for in the bag that you think is going to get you through this life and into the next? Christians and non-Christians alike think this way. We just do it. It's instinctive for us. Even if we know better in our heads, in our hearts, we don't. Because we're, we're a fallen people. When, you know, the boss is riding us at work, when um, our kids are, are getting in trouble, when our marriage seems to be, you know, on the rocks, when our deepest relationships with, with family or even our own personal relationship with God just seems to be failing, inevitably what we do is we, we have this moment where we sort of gather ourselves and go, okay, it's time to buck up. It is time for me to reach for what works. And inevitably it's something some human quality that we, that we think we possess in some, in some way that's going to carry us through, it's going to see us through uh, these, these tough moments, through, through even this life. And today I want to look at um, a couple of stories told in Luke chapter 18. Um, one is a story that actually happened. The other is a story that Jesus makes up. And these two stories I think Luke gives us because what he wants to do is he wants to um, dispel this this myth of ours that we've got seven irons that we can reach for and dig ourselves out of whatever mess uh, we're in and ultimately even dig us into uh, or dig us out enough that we get into the next life. I think really what we're talking about is on sort of two planes and I'm just going to kind of go back and forth between them, right? Spiritual and then just daily matters, just day-to-day -day life things. In both of those things, we think, I've got a seven iron. I'm going to see my way through this. It's going to be okay. So, um, you don't have to turn there, but if you want, you can turn there. Otherwise, just listen. Uh, Luke chapter 18. And they are, um, one is the, uh, the story of the rich young ruler, and the other is the parable of the tax collector and the, uh, the Pharisee. So Luke chapter 18, if you want to follow along. All right, I'm going to read the, uh, the rich young ruler first. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your, fa uh, your father and your mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he answered in reply. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. So then Peter said to him, We've left everything we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to him in reply. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this life, in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
the question that the, the rich young ruler poses is the question really that, that all of us have asked um, or maybe are asking, you know. We've either asked it at some point in our life or maybe we're, we're asking it now, right? What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What, what is my responsibility? What have I got to do here to get through this round, you know, successfully without, without imploding? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. And uh, the rich young ruler says, I, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, that, that wasn't a question. That was a statement. I know that you keep the commandments. This isn't about keeping things. This is about losing things. And I want you to lose something. And I want you to begin with your money. The rich young ruler, of course, is, is good at keeping things. Keeping his ducks in a row. Having everything figured out. And, you know, he pauses. We don't, we don't get the whole story. But his silent answer is, I'd like to keep my money. I can't, I can't part with that. Money in itself is not a bad thing, but it is the rich young ruler seven iron. It's the one thing that, uh, that Jesus has just pointed out and has just found out the one thing that he holds on to that he thinks is going to bail him out, that's going to get him through this round. See, in every age and every culture, right, people worship money, worship the rich. And those who are rich, who actually have wealth, worship their wealth. And in this culture, there are two general assumptions then, and I think they're kind of pretty much the same as they are today, all right? You got your wealth as a reward for your holiness, for being smart, because you led a better life. That's one assumption. Or the other assumption is, well, because you are rich, then you will lead a better life, a cleaner life. It'll sort of become a, you know, a matter of chicken and egg, which came first, which birthed which. And, you know, we're good at saying stuff uh, to sort of ease our envy of money because most of us don't have a whole lot of it. Um, we say stuff like what? Money can't buy you love or buy you happiness, right? And the rich people laugh. Ha, ha, ha. As they fly by and they're Escalades. Um, no. Um, we say that. Money can't buy you this. But we're, we're what? We're told just the opposite a million times a day, right? On radio, on TV, driving down the highway, see the billboards, right? Um, that sort of stuff. Money, most of us believe at some level. You know, it's just an easy one for Jesus to point out. Most of us believe at some level that money has the ability to make your life better to get you through this round. And once you sort of come into money, you start to really pride yourself about what you have. And you begin to think that it is the thing that will give you holiness, will make you right before God. Um, in the Jewish and pagan culture, money is blessing. Just as simple as that. It's the reason why when Jesus says, well, you know, harder, you know, for the rich to get in heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle, the rich are like, whoa, wait a second. Who can be saved? As far as he's concerned, the rich young ruler has got the best seven iron that, that known to man. This is it. He's not about to take that, that club out of his bag and put it on the shelf and go on about his round without it. 
He knows in his heart of hearts, or he thinks he does, that that's the thing that gets him through. Jesus finds this, of course, disappointing, but not, not surprising, right? How hard it is for the rich to enter eternal life. Easier to push a camel through the eye of a needle. And the crowd around Jesus, of course, is stumped. I mean, they know exactly what we know, that, that money, as far as they're concerned, equals blessing. It's the best seven iron you can have. Who can be saved if not the rich? Now, Peter, you've got to love Peter. I mean, if you read the Gospels and spend time in them, just, just got to fall in love with Peter and how quick he is, how ready he is to always shout out the right answer. So Peter's listening to this, this discourse, how hard it is. Who can be saved, someone asks. And then Peter, I love this. We've left everything to follow you. And I think, I swear, if I were there, I'm sure this is what Jesus would have done if I, if, I, if I were a reliable eyewitness. He turned around and he said, Peter, your seven iron's showing. I see your seven iron. Money is very addictive. It's probably the most addictive seven iron in the bag, but it's not the only seven iron in the bag, right? There are all kinds of seven irons out there, all, all kinds of things that you can be addicted to that you think are the thing that gets you through. And Jesus says, I'm not condemning a particular kind of seven iron. I'm condemning seven irons in general. Get them out of your bag. Anything you trust in, anything you cling to, anything that you point to, and you can say, that will get me through, is a seven iron. Anything that, by which you say, see, I've got it together. I'm all right. Peter. Peter, the, the rich young ruler, seven iron, is his money. But your seven iron is the bold claim that you don't have a seven iron. There's a movie years ago, 1992, which means a lot of you weren't even born. I remember it, which means I'm getting really old. This is the first film that came to mind as soon as I thought about this, this interchange, this exchange between Peter uh, and Jesus. The movie was called Singles. How many people have ever seen the movie Singles? This is going to admit how old you are. Great. You're going to reveal to people. Old. 37. Yeah, 37. We'll talk about that another time. Uh, <laughs> um, Singles is a movie that was really popular in the early 90s because it was the era of grunge. So this, this movie you know, featured like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, Nirvana. Some people were like, yeah, that's sweet times. Um, <laughs> they were sweet times. Uh, it's a movie about hooking up. It's a movie about single people trying to find love, you know, and get, and get through life. And um, the main couple, there's like a bunch of couples. As in, it's not a story unlike many other stories told today. It's just a different genre. And a bunch of stories about these single people meeting each other and falling in love and getting married. And the main, the main couple named Steve and Linda. And um, I'm just going to read a, a bit of a quick exchange that they have because this is exactly what's happening with Jesus. Um, Steve gets convinced to leave his house out of his, mo you know, his morning because uh, he's just been broken up with. And the guy's like, hey, come on, we're going to go find you a new girl, you know. And, and they, he's like, oh, I don't want to go, you know, same old business, you know. And there's going to be no one like her. And they go out to the bar and he sees this, this beautiful, um, you know, classy girl who he's just really interested in. So he goes up 
to the bar or, and, and sees her. And this is what he says. He says, all right, my, my friend and I have this argument, and here it is. He says, when you're at a place like this, you can't just be yourself. You need an act. So anyway, I saw you standing there, so I thought, A, I could just leave you alone. B, I could come up with an act. Or C, I could just be myself. He says, I chose C. What do you think? She says, I think that A, you have an act, and that B, not having an act is your act. <laughs> right? Peter, you're not having a seven iron is your seven iron. What's your seven iron? What, what do you do when the chips are down, you know? I mean, most of us just kind of cruise through life on autopilot, and then some bump or blip gets up in the road, and then we really have to take stock of things, and we start to reach for our bag. What, do you, what are you reaching for? What are you grabbing at? What do you trust in, ultimately, in place of Jesus, for your well-being, but also for, for your well-being after this life? I mean, it's a question, really, that, that's kind of loaded. It's kind of huge. You know, we do this when it comes to putting food on the table, paying mortgage or rent, and we do it when we think of, how can I stand before holy and an awesome God? On what grounds can I do that? And that's the question that Jesus has sort of hovering over the other story, the one that he makes up about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Um, this is also from Luke chapter 18. Starting at verse 9, he says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, first, note, note who the story is told to. To those confident in their own righteousness, the Pharisees. Sometimes I mean, it's so easy to just to, to give the Pharisees a bad rap, right? They're not all bad. They're very much human, very much like you and me. Um, confident in their own righteousness, this, this praying Pharisee says thanks to God, essentially the content of his prayer. Thank you for making me a decent guy. Well, honestly, what one of us hasn't prayed that? at some point in our life? Thank you for, I mean, what a blessing it is to have a life, to have a marriage, for instance, and a family where, where you love each other, where you care for each other, where you're honest and you're true to each other, and your parents love you and you love your parents and vice versa. What one of us hasn't said, thank you, God, for, for making me a faithful husband or a faithful wife and for giving me a faithful wife and, and on and on, or kids, giving me a job and making me a hard worker, whatever it may be. Lots of things to thank God for. It's not a bad prayer in and of itself. We've probably prayed stuff like that a million times. He's giving credit to God 
for what God has made him, which is great. But then there's the tax collector. And, and I think the contrast is even more visible to see that, and seeing that the Pharisee's prayer isn't evil in itself. The tax collector can't even look up to God and just says, God, have mercy on me. There's a broken mess, a sinner, not even worthy of turning my face upwards towards yours. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, he's the one who goes home justified before God. Now, justified is, is, is a term. It's not just like, you know, any term you can toss around. It's a legal term in the Jewish world and in the Christian world. It means something. All right, here's how the Jews pictured your life, your existence. They pictured it in the, in the scene of a court, a courtroom. Salvation is always pictured for the Jews and in the early Christians like a courtroom. There is God the judge, right? Sits up on high, wears a robe, and there's you and me down below the defendants. And the judge walks in, right, and he asks the defendant or defendants to stand. And the first question he asks is, okay, who represents this guy? Right? Now, normally, in, especially in our world, it's, you know, some dirtbag attorney out, out to make a, a cheap buck. He doesn't care one lick about this guy's life or his salvation. No offense to any attorneys here or listening online. Um, Justin, you may edit that out. Um, but in this case, it's Jesus. Jesus stands up, and he says, I do, Your Honor. So the judge says, okay, well, how are you going to plead this case? How are you going to plead for your, uh, your defendant? And I don't toss this word around cavalierly. Jesus says, Your Honor, guilty as hell. Guilty, deserving all hell and death. And so, you know, the judge is sort of um, scratching his head. Uh, it's a strange plea. Not one you'd normally get. And the thing we might expect then for, for Jesus to work out with the judge is maybe some leniency, you know, lighten the sentence a little bit. Maybe, maybe some clemency, you know, kind of maybe, maybe we'll just let him off this time as if this never happened. Let him get on by the way that he's going. But Jesus doesn't ask for that. He says, I want you to give him a ruling of justified, of righteous. This is a tall, tall request, isn't it? Here's a defendant standing before the judge. Jesus, the defending attorney, says, this guy's guilty as hell. But I want you to declare him righteous. Not just off the hook. I want you to declare him righteous. And the judge, the judge, because he's a judge of honor, has got to be saying, this is insane. On what grounds am I going to declare this guy who's guilty as righteous? I can't do that and still be the righteous judge. And Jesus says, do it on my name. Do it on my reputation. I am staking my name to this guy if he will have me so that what is true of me is true of him. And we don't get to see this very often in real life and, what this, you know, and the way this works out. Tony Dungy. How many of you guys know Tony Dungy? 
right? Former head football coach for the Indianapolis Colts, won a Super Bowl, outspoken Christian. Jesse's parents' church support Tony Dungy's parents as missionaries to this day. It's totally weird, a strange connection. Grew up in a very strong family of faith. And all along the while, while he was coaching football, he said, look, I'm gifted at this, I'm talented at this, but what I really want to do is share the gospel and use this platform to, to change lives with the gospel. And what's he doing now? Well, Tony Dungy has sort of become an advocate for really messed up thugs in the NFL. He, like, seeks them out and says, will you let me represent you? And if they say yes, he goes before the commissioner, Roger Goodell, and he says, look, I know my client's a thug, and he is guilty of deserving all that you have for him, but I want you to declare him righteous. And Roger Goodell says, on what grounds? And he says that I'm staking my reputation and my name to this guy. And what happens there in that moment, too, is Tony Dungeon leans over to the guy, and he says, look, at, we walk out this door, we're walking out together. What, what I say, you say. What I do, you do. Where I go, you go. You are in me. You remain in me. You tie your mast to me. You hold fast to me. And you'll be all right. That's the only way you're getting out of this room. Declared righteous. And that's what happens really in, in that courtroom at the Hebrews Envision. Jesus takes us, his client, aside. And he whispers, you know, like you've seen them do in those courtroom movies, you know, and there's always something whispered between, you know, the, the attorney and the client. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to us. You get out of this room, you're getting out of here with me, and that's the only way you're getting out. And you hold fast to me. Where I go, you go. What I say, you say. What I do, you do. Those are the terms. Are you good with those terms? And you say, heck yeah. Because you know that it is your life. That it is your salvation. It's your only shot. And what Jesus is saying is the Pharisees don't do that. They just think, no, I've got these wonderful gifts. I've got these wonderful, look at this bag of clubs that God has blessed me with. I can use those. And Jesus is saying, you don't stand a chance without me. And I want you to see that. Whether it be a matter of putting food on the table or, or getting in to be with the Father when life is done, you don't stand a chance in either of those things without me. I am the thing that gets you through the valley of the shadow of death and sees you out the other side, not your seven iron. Whatever that seven iron is, your only shot at getting through this round is utter surrender, just putting yourselves in the hands of Jesus, saying, okay, those are the terms. Where you go, I go. Paul says, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly, and despise things, to nullify the things that are not, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, this is beautiful, who is himself our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Jesus himself is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Shelve your seven irons. Talking to me, put my seven iron on the shelf. Surrender your life, every aspect of it, every fiber of your being 
into Jesus' hands. Because ultimately the truth is that he is the only thing that sees you through. You may think it's your seven iron, but it's not. What are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples? I am the vine. You are branches. I'm the vine. You are branches. And my father, the gardener, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. But those that bear fruit, he prunes so they can grow even more. You are clean because of me. And the gospel that I've spoken to you, remain in me. I'll remain in you. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Remain in my love. All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. We are walking out the door together. Where I go, you go. Hold tight to me. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will make it out the other side because and only because I am with you. You will put food on your table. You will pay your rent. You will put gas in your car and get to work and take care of your family and your friends, not because you're gifted, talented, or good-looking, but because I am with you. You will make it through this life and into the next round to be with the Father, to be in his presence, not because you are righteous by your own gifts, by your own talents, by your own striving, but because I am with you. And if I am with you, you are with me. This table that we share in every week is a perpetual reminder of just that, that Jesus is with us, that he did not abandon us, that he didn't get before the judge and go, not this dirtbag, no way, I'm not defending him, but that he stood up and said, yes, he is mine, she is mine. I claim them in my name that they would have my righteousness, that they would have my joy, that they would have what I have with you, Father. They get to enjoy it too. The table, for this table, you don't have to have led or walked a perfect life. You could have walked in this door today as someone who said, nah, Jesus isn't for me. But now you're saying, I want to put my life in his hands. That's the only requirement for this table. That you say, I surrender my life into Jesus' hands, and I know that my fate is with him. And his fate is good. I want to remain in him. If that's you, if you've been saying that for years, or if you've just been saying that in the last 10 minutes, then this table is for you.